Welcome to the C Word, the Conservatives podcast. Today we're talking about diversity. I'm Jenny Mathiason, an objects conservative based in South Yorkshire. And I'm Chloe Rumsey, an objects conservative based in Greater Manchester. Welcome to the show, everyone. And today we've got a special guest host. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, uh, my name is Ali Singh. I am an emerging conservator, very, very recently returned to Ottawa, Canada. I like to talk about diversity and I particularly enjoy social history collections. Some of you may remember Ali from being like the foremost Twitter person at Icon19. So if you followed anything that came out of hashtag Icon19 earlier this year, then Ali was responsible for a lot of that content. Today, we thought we'd do a bit of a follow-up episode because it's now almost a year ago when we did a diversity panel with icon at their annual general meeting um, Mm -hmm. and we thought we would do a bit of a catch-up see if we think anything's changed Mm -hmm. that sort of thing right so here we are (laughs) for those of you who haven't listened to the or didn't get to listen to the diversity panel sort of special feature what did we call it special feature special we did as a bonus episode bonus episode Mm. that's it we were on a stream on facebook and then we cut it down to be a bonus episode yeah that's a bit more accessible so mm-hmm. we were speaking, Christina was with us on the panel and Neris was with us and yep. we also had Rebecca. Um, Rebecca Plum as an emerging professional. So trying to cover different areas of the sort of diversity range, I suppose, basically just to take the take take the discussion out of the hands of the sort of old white people <laughs> well yeah, the, the stereotypical was it what was it 42 year old white woman uh, middle mid, class white woman yeah, middle-aged middle woman. class white woman yeah, yeah that's, that's right it. yeah yeah yeah, yeah which mm-hmm. i'm like thundering towards i feel like in a horrible speed <laughs> but it will all be middle-aged middle class white women at some point and then i thought no we won't no we won't wait, that's wait, the point yes yeah. the point yes yeah not me yeah. no we won't yeah. that's what i mean i'll be a middle-aged woman but not yeah a white yeah woman, I'll, so. I'll go as far as middle-aged woman and that's why we're here yes <laughs> hard to know where to start i suppose a lot of the stuff that we're going to talk about has kind of been covered in our initial episode which was the mm. demographics episode yes yeah way back in season one which is how we started this whole thing because a lot of the stuff we've got is still the data from 2013 the labor market survey mm-hmm. That was done by Icon back then. So a lot of the data is still that data. But I do know that there's a new a new survey kind of in the works, kind of. Mm-hmm. That will be very exciting to see the results of that. Yeah. There is recently, as 2018, the AIC put out a uh, membership designation survey. Uh, it had 950 respondents. Oh, I wow. unfortunately oh, wow. don't have access to it since I'm not a member of the AIC. But I have a photograph of a slide of it from Icon somewhere in my Twitter feed. Oh, very nice. I'll see if I can dig that up and link to it. It's a, it's a bit blurry, but it is there. It's from um, one of the leadership and ad- advocacy sessions. It was the the folks from the Wintruther program in oh, Delaware. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And if I am reading the slide correctly, the AIC numbers have it for those 950 respondents being 78% female and over 85% white. Mm -hmm. Um, And you guys still have the numbers for the UK. Mm -hmm. I did also look for the CAC, the Canadian Association for uh, Professional Conservators, but we don't have anything like that yet. But membership is a lot smaller. Membership numbers are, I think, around 400 a year, give or take. So we haven't had the opportunity yet to do a survey like that, but I'm hoping in the future that the CAC does and that all professional bodies do something like that. That would be great to see. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really important Mm -hmm. to know who your membership base is and 
I mean, admittedly, right? So this is now we're talking about membership. We're not even talking about all conservatives because not all conservatives will be members of Icon, yeah, for example. Exactly. So again, we're talking about a slice of a slice, but it is important to still look at that because it will give you a snapshot, even if it's not a hundred percent accurate, of what your actual workforce looks like. Exactly. And yeah, so I do believe that it was a ludicrously high amount of just just white people in the, yeah. the conservation labour market one. Yeah. Um, like much, much higher than what's in the UK at large. Now, I think you said it was like 97%. I just listened to the episode yesterday. <laughs> it was a crazy amount, basically like amount. 2% yeah. BAME. You know what, I'm going to look at... Though up, I'm actually, I'm struggling I'm to remember whether BAME was even like a recognised sort of thing that mm. people used in 2013 because it was that long ago. Yeah, no, I that actually, oh, that's a good thing to probably start with, uh, especially in any diversity discussion, the acronyms that we'll be using. So the acronym BAME, B-A-M-E, uh, okay. stands for Black, Asian, and Minority Ethnic, if I am correct. Yes. And then there is also the acronym BIPOC, B-I-P-O-C, which is used a lot more in North America, to my understanding. Yeah, I had and that, that stands one. for Black, Indigenous, and Person of Color. Ah, okay. Yeah. So if uh, if you ever hear me say BIPOC at any point, that's what I'm referring to, Black, Indigenous, and Person of Color. Gotcha. Because that's how I would uh, identify myself. Yeah, as, sure. At least as a visible minority, I would say, yes, I'm definitely a BIPOC. Yeah, yeah. So. All right, so I just loaded up the little graphic that I made for the, the episode because I did the UK Conservatives as 100 people based on the data from the survey. And 97% uh, are white or identify as white of the people who were actually taking the survey. And the 2% that I remember, that's the disabilities. Yes. Um, mm. So, yeah. So, like, it, it's not looking great in terms of balance. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. We're looking at very different kind of diversity populations mm -hmm. in, say, North America versus uh, the UK. Yeah. Uh, because we've got different mixes of people, obviously. Mm -hmm. So for fancies, I wanted to look up what the UK as a whole looks like in 100 people. Now, mm -hmm. even percentages would have been great. But actually, <laughs> this was a real piecemeal thing. Because the last time someone had done a comprehensive one was 2009, which oh is a very long That's, time ago. So it's very Yeah, outdated. things have definitely changed. Definitely. <laughs> so, so I started piecing together bits of data that I could find. And even then, mm -hmm. it's not a very good overall picture because ultimately these guys might have worked from different data sets mm -hmm. and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But in very rough terms, it seems like if we boil down to the UK as 100 people, 86 of them will be white, eight Asian, three African or Caribbean, two mixed and one other. Wow. 49 are men, 51 are women. And then I, Francis, I looked into how many people would possibly be disabled. And if we go by the numbers that a charity called Scope produced, then as many as 21 would be disabled. But bearing in mind that being disabled means a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. So that's worth bearing in mind because obviously that's two in the conservatives as 100 people mm -hmm. yeah, pie chart, that, yeah, yeah, which is insane. Absolutely. And then I tried working out how many people will be of the LGBT community because that's something that I care about. And actually, that's not something that, you know, factored into the lab labor market survey thing uh, at mm -hmm. all. So we don't have any numbers on that whatsoever. But approximate, according, according to some statistics, 6.8% of 
the UK population might consider themselves to be LGBTQ+. I'm not really sure on how they've arrived at that. No. <laughs> I have some questions about that entire thing. It, it seems like a bit more of a guess because not everybody is comfortable advertising, well, yeah. you know, how they have their gender identity or their orientation or anything like that. That's, that's not something a lot of people want to share. Yeah, exactly. Which is really sad. It is. Basically, that's a bit more of a shot in the dark, I think. Like, I don't mm -hmm. think we actually have mm -hmm. very good numbers on that. But yeah. I thought it was interesting as a kind of baseline that that's what the UK population mm -hmm. looks like. And then when we look at what the Conservatives look like, that's very different. Now, mm -hmm. something that there aren't numbers for in this and that I'm curious about from a completely different point of view is how this relates to class. But that's a really, right. really British kind of mentality, I suppose. Yeah. And that yeah. just shows how incredibly assimilated I am now that I'm starting to worry, to worry about class. Well, I think it's <laughs> from the point of view of someone brought up always in the UK. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to think of attitudes to the concept of class and talking about class. And I think those attitudes are, we're sort of supposed to think that class isn't a thing anymore. That, oh, that's, right. that, that, that's something that we should have grown out of kind of thing. And I know that I know there are political roots to this way of thinking, but I can't remember what they are. So I'm sorry. But it's obvious that class is still a thing. And it's the same here. I mean, we don't, I don't think it's talked about quite as like in such a nuanced way as in the UK, but we still will look around and be like, oh, that person's working class or oh, that person's upper yeah. class, their family owns a construction company. You know, we still feel that in the way that we interact with our peers and our colleagues and the people on the street, like which neighborhood you lived in. It's, you still get that here. Mm -hmm. It's not as talked about, but you still get it. Exactly. And I think part of that, um, maybe in both places, all places, part of the fact that we are failing on that is because we still feel that we can't talk about it mm -hmm. or that it's something that, oh no, that doesn't affect people nowadays or something. <laughs> but maybe if we just got a bit more sort of down to earth about the whole thing, then we would get better at, I think at that, dealing with it. I think it. this is really, really interesting because I feel like, I feel like, class comes up quite a lot actually um, and you also have to remember the status quo as well i mean mm. the structures that we have in our society is what's keeping people in the tier that they would call themselves being a part of the class mm. they're part of and at the same time there are while very few there are places where you can climb from one class to the one above you mm. in theory and people don't want to dismantle that system because of the privilege inherent in being part of that system yeah it's in my opinion that you can't have a conversation about diversity without talking about privilege and understanding that that's part of the reason why we have a diversity problem. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Yeah. I, I absolutely agree. And I think this is one of those fascinating things because Sweden's system is very different. And again, I think there's, a, there's this point where we all pretend that class doesn't exist anymore because, <laughs> oh, we're so much better than that now. Yeah. But in actual fact, only so true. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. I think it's much more deeply rooted in, in British society to think about class, which is really interesting for me to observe. And then I get into rows with people about what class I count as and what mm -hmm. can be considered class so you both brought up um economy like mm -hmm. uh, yeah. mm -hmm. the financial side of things which mm -hmm. is something that i automatically think of but loads of people in the uk have told me that actually the financial side doesn't matter like poverty has nothing to do with class wait um, what uh, 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 uh. poverty uh. has nothing to do with class because you can be a temporarily embarrassed millionaire or you can be uh, <laughs> um, or, okay or like right. loads of these things right 
right? <laughs> I think completely denying the fact that I think the financial side has a really, really strong <laughs> anchoring in what kind of class that you can consider yourself mm-hmm. as yeah. or what you th- you perceive yourself to be and what other per- others mm-hmm. perceive you as. Oh, yeah. So I think that's a whole bundle of things that people are very unhappy <laughs> on picking. It's really, really, really fun and very exhausting yeah. to wade into these conversations. What is the general rule when you go to a family meeting or a family family holiday event, right? It's like you don't talk about politics and you don't talk about money. Those are the two things. Nobody wants to talk about them. Also not because religion. There's this, and religion, yeah, yeah. There's religion. But yeah, it just makes too many people uncomfortable. But yeah. we should be talking yeah. about them. Because, for example, um, I've been in plenty of situations where people have said, well, there's absolutely no way that anyone who works in a museum can be working class because it's a middle class institution. So anyone who works there will not be working class by definition, which I thought was an interesting one because I mm. very much disagree. I disagree. I very yeah, much disagree. I, not I that disagree museums well. aren't middle class institutions because I think in terms of what they are, they currently are, and we're trying to break free mm-hmm. from that. Historically, mm-hmm. I would definitely mm-hmm. say that they are. Yeah. And they continue to be, and we're trying to break that down. But I don't think that just because you work at a museum, you have to be considered middle class or anything of the sort. I think yeah. I think that's false. I just don't agree with that. And I think that <laughs> I think that possibly comes from just more privilege, to be honest. Just look exactly. just just looking around and going, everyone here seems quite comfortable. So I think we're probably all middle class. <laughs> is a, an interesting assumption. Like conveniently forgetting anyone who doesn't fit that. Yeah. How about this definition? So the way that my museum considers um like audiences is they will refer to non-typical museum audiences <laughs> as a group of people to or as a, a, a demographic to um, yeah. increase access to, increase yeah. or encourage participation in. And that sort of, that doesn't, obviously that doesn't just cover class or people from, well. Lower socioeconomic Ooh, yes. backgrounds. Ooh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I should say it's election season in Canada, so the buzzwords are all oh, over man. the Oh, man, yeah, well done, well done. <laughs> but also people from different areas of Greater Manchester. I suppose there's the problems of people not having enough money to consider working in a museum and people not feeling that it's their place. You also have to consider where exactly these museums are located. I mean, these big institutions are located in the heart of downtown, in the middle of the tourism sector, in the quote unquote gentrified areas. And that can be terrifying. Yeah. yeah, people who aren't comfortable going into those neighborhoods might not want to visit the museums or work at these places because mm. they don't feel comfortable even walking to work. Yeah, mm. is this a really interesting thing that you that you know that you're getting at? That sometimes yeah. just the mere look of yeah. our institutions mm-hmm. means that they're off-putting to work yeah. or to visit. Like they yeah. are really, they can be really scary. Half of them look like classical temples, for goodness' sake. <laughs> We've got we've got here in Canada a lot of buildings that are made of glass, made of concrete, and there's these beautiful architectural marvels. But if it's not something that you're used to seeing, it is shocking, you know? And then when you add in the cost to enter as well, that's an immediate turnoff for someone who just can't afford a ticket. So yeah, it's not great. So yeah, I think there's plenty of reason to get fighting about class still. It is a yeah. massive diversity factor. And yeah. I think it is worth talking about. I will say that Leanne Tonkin had an excellent plenary yes. session at ICON about forging ways through the fear factor and how classism kind of worked against the beginning of her career. So shout out to Leanne for that, because it was really eye-opening for someone who hasn't had thoughts in that kind of direction before. 
before because I see diversity as an issue in other ways than somebody else, for example. So. Absolutely. And I think that was a very uncomfortable talk for a lot of people. And that's the whole point. Oh, yeah. It needed oh, to be yeah. uncomfortable. And then also, I just wanted to give a shout out to a group called Museum as Muck. Uh, oh, yeah. Because they do some great work. And later, we're going to hear a bit more about class in the museum sector. Okay. Uh, we already know, we've, we've covered the ground that the conservation field is largely homogenous and that it's pretty much white and middle-aged women. We know that. Um, and we are seeing in the emerging conservation bracket, I suppose you could say, more and more people from like of color, of, of different backgrounds. Um, coming into the field. So that's absolutely incredible. But what I am finding, at least in my own experiences, I'm a biracial woman. My father is from India. My mother is um, from Northern Ontario. She is white. And I'm finding as I'm getting experience in the field, I'm oftentimes the only person of color in that setting. Mm -hmm. And while that's exciting because it means that doors are starting to open for people of color in the field, it's also nerve wracking because many times you'll have uh, a conversation about about an object, about a context, about a treatment. And I might say, oh, well, why don't we do this just because I'm coming from a different perspective? And, you know, people are like, oh, that's really great. Why don't you, you know, take the lead and do the research on that? But it's it's an object that is not something that is in my uh, cultural background, let's say. So objects that come from um, indigenous groups, objects that come from uh, the continent of Africa, for example, I can't best represent them, but I'm oftentimes given the job of representing them as the only person of color in the laboratory setting. And I think this can be said across the board for any kinds of things, like people with different gender identities and, and orientations, people of different religions and backgrounds, they oftentimes, if they're the only person in that setting that can represent a large grouping, they get... I don't want to say saddled, but they get the, the job of having to represent something that they might not feel comfortable representing, but they know they have to step up and do it. That is true. It's true what you say that yeah. if you're the diversity representative in your organization, <laughs> in whatever form that takes, then you do end up being the person who has to do everything, mm -hmm. which is terrifying and very exhausting. But at the same time, yeah, it's not right that any one person like gets that much pressure. No, but on the other hand, I, I, I mean, I completely agree. It's really awkward, mm -hmm. um, slightly shameful situation to put anyone in of like, you're our token person. Could you just, you mm -hmm. you can do the same job as um, somebody who's the sort of cultural owner of this object, right? Hello, you're foreign. Yeah, exactly. Would you like to work on <laughs> That's what I'm getting at, yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> but on the other hand, I do think that's preferable to, say, for example, someone white British like myself, if the object is a pro product of colonial theft, essentially. Mm. And I don't think I am part of the problem, but I'm certainly not part of the solution. So though it's not yeah. fair to put anyone in the bracket of now it's your job, it's also not necessarily right for me to go I'll just carry on this then. Is, <laughs> this is a bit interesting because I, I'm of the mindset that repatriation is a good thing, right? And I don't want to segue into that. That is an entirely different can of worms. But I had the, a conversation with a friend of mine recently where I joked that, you know, oh, the British Museum is hiring. Haha, ha, they'll never hire me because I've been so outspoken about diversity in the workplace and repatriation and da-da-da-da-da. And my friend joked back, oh yeah, they're never going to hire you because you've talked about that. And it just brings up the thought process that people who would fall into that diversity bracket, so to speak, if you check the boxes on the application, can be really afraid to rock the boat when they go into these institutions because if they are the only person or one of only a handful, you know, they don't, they don't want to disrupt the status quo in a way that not only could potentially irrevocably harm their career, but also keep from hiring other people in similar or of similar diverse backgrounds and, and beyond. And it's just 
well, it's just frustrating to me at least because that is kind of stymieing what the society as a whole can learn because what we, who we are impacts what we or how we interpret objects and how we yeah. present them, right? If um, the history and the narratives presented to the public and their understandings of our shared history isn't really a shared history if the people presenting them is just a very small demographic of the whole. Yeah, absolutely. I have to say that you are the second person to actually express that experience oh, okay. to me. Someone else who wanted to remain anonymous said something mm -hmm. very similar about how they felt like if they were hired by an institution, they would stop campaigning because yeah. they would feel like they would be liable to be fired or mistreated in some way if they then kept on being a beacon of hope, which is like just terrible. Like the fact that yeah. that we're thinking that getting a job in yeah. one of these prestigious places means that uh, we'd essentially have to sell our soul and stop caring about the things that we care yeah. about, which is basic, you know, equality is 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 appalling. But you're, mm -hmm. you're not the first person to have said that. And I know that you're not the only one to be thinking it. Yeah. So that is what's, another problem. Well, what's interesting too, is that like our fellow conservators, they're the ones and well, everybody in the museum field for the most part, on the individual level, people are actively working toward making change to putting platforms in place for these voices. But it's still the structure as a whole, not just of our society, but in the way the heritage field works, that still tends to be a little bit behind the times, I, I suppose you could say, in terms of of how we're dealing with people as individuals and people of diverse backgrounds. So shout out to all of the conservators and collections managers and curators out there who are pulling in, you know, people from, let's say, lower socioeconomic backgrounds for internships and providing them with opportunities. And let's shout out all the people who are trying to decolonize their museums. We still have a lot more work to do in terms of getting the structure of the institutions themselves as a whole body up to speed with where we are as people. I wonder if then we need to, as conservatives, but as people who work in museums generally, encourage a pressure to be put on museums from the community. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, there are certainly museums who are trying to be better, but then there are others that aren't quite there yet, let's say, or yeah. that are at least, if, if they are trying to be better, they're at the moment so famously rubbish at this particular thing <laughs> that it hasn't got the, it hasn't got to the community yet that they're trying to be better. So mm -hmm. I, I would like to give a shout out here to Fair Museum Jobs. Who mm -hmm. is a, they're incredible. Incredible. <laughs> they are. They're, they're a force to be reckoned with. So they call out this sort of behaviour everywhere. Yeah. I know that Icon has said that they are actively working with them, which I think is a really important step. Like they will call out when yeah. jobs are advertised that aren't paying enough or when work practices are bad. And mm -hmm. I love that kind of collaboration. Yeah, like it's brilliant. There needs mm -hmm. to be naming and shaming. Just on the kind of topic of mm -hmm. labour practices and jobs and all that stuff, I just wanted to hock back to what we mentioned in a previous episode, which was that they've revised the minimums. <laughs> yes. Well, recommended entry-level <laughs> conservator salary finally is adjusted with inflation, which means that it's gone up from £24,648 per year to £27,108 per year, which is a bit of a hike. But then time has progressed. That was long overdue and we were all celebrating when it happened. And on that topic, actually, <laughs> I, before I knew this was happening, in August, I asked conservators if they were earning less than the 24k minimum. I asked them on Twitter in a Twitter poll from the podcast and 45% said that they, they did earn more, which was good. And 25% said that they earned less than that, regardless of where they were in their career. And then when this was revised, I ran the poll again, at which point 52% said they earned less than 27k. So just 
just throwing it out there, but pay us more. <laughs> yes, please. Just, yes, as, please. just as a general, general kind of advice. That's really hard because yeah. I was celebrating as well as a yeah, let's we yeah, let's recognise inflation, please. That'd be great. But I'm and then you got five depressed. or six. How many years am I into my? I'm at least five years into my career. Six. You're six I'm, years in. I'm six years into my career, and I'm still paid less than the previous minimum figure for emerging professionals yes or, or, so, or starters there's, there's, there's some stuff so, to be done there uh, the, yeah i can i can academically i can go excellent this is well done i can't brilliant but you know yeah sure we're, we're not paid that but we can encourage we can projects encourage. and things like that yeah. to go with the minimum recommended mm-hmm. entry yeah. level salary yeah which then mm-hmm. makes it sound a bit more plausible and then yeah. if they have the common decencies to, to go, isn't it funny that you're not paid that? You can retort with, isn't it funny you should pay me that? <laughs> it's not funny in the slightest. <laughs> yes. Uh, but anyway, in the same kind of announcement, yeah. it was bundled in that they uh, they were considering running a webinar with Prospect on how Ooh. unions can support conservatives <laughs> in the workplace. Ooh. Now, I have to say, Britain doesn't seem to be huge on unions, not in the way that, that we are where I come from, because in, in Sweden, unions are huge, or at least they were 10 years ago when I... No, 12 years ago when I left like it was they used to be it was a pretty standard thing to be part of a union and it would be really frowned upon not to be Mm. like it would be seen as really weird like who do you think you are so I think I think I come from a very different background in that way that I think unions are really like a natural part of working life as well that's not really been the case of my experience of working life in Britain and conservatives especially often are not part of any union at all and if they are it's because they're part of a university Mm -hmm. so they're part of the university union or similar if we can get unions going i think that can be a real stepping stone to continuing to make sure that we get paid adequately that people actually look after our health Mm -hmm. and that we don't do things that we're massively uncomfortable with but yeah so and that we work on increasing diversity yes absolutely so i think all of those things are things worth throwing out there Mm -hmm. but yeah so i just wanted to mention that it's it's incredible the dom effect that just better pay would have on the field as a whole. Yeah. Well, I, I'd just like to say, Jenny, that you're you're still right on base with this diversity conversation because every not everybody, okay, that's a generalization, but a lot of people tend to turn diversity into a two-dimensional thing that's just visible minorities checking boxes on an application mm-hmm. form. But diversity is this ever-growing, ever-changing thing that we have to recognize. And it it's a call to action just as much as it is a group of people in a room. And so these are all factors that need to be considered uh, in order to have as diverse of a workplace as possible that best represents the audience of the museum that you want to have, of the society that you're in. So I think you're right on the right track with that. I also think, and uh, I know that we all say that the professional bodies should be doing more and we should be jo- joining unions and we, we should, those are all things that are true. But I also think that the the change starts with you. Like if you're in in a position where you are hiring people or, you know, have any influence whatsoever on any of that stuff of recruitment, anything, this this is your job. It's mm-hmm. your job to make mm-hmm. it a diverse workplace. You should give people a chance when they're exactly. different backgrounds. You should make sure that diverse audiences see the job advert and apply. Mm-hmm. You need to make this happen. It is your job. It is. What can we do about it then? What else can we do about it? At the town hall debate last year, there were several themes that came up quite a lot as ways of tackling this. And I don't think think some of the things that we were talking about, particularly Neris was talking about people feeling safe and like they belong in places. I don't necessarily know that talking about the financial side of the support, which is essentially what 
most of these solutions target. I don't necessarily think that they would solve that but maybe it's a step in the right direction it is you have to be able to afford the to take the job yeah that's kind of a no-brainer yeah. in my opinion yeah. but I mean aside from that it is a little bit tricky because for mm-hmm. a workplace to feel like a, a safe place it's good if there are other people there who can help you make who can yeah. help make you feel safe yeah. and yeah. that's about representation so if you mm-hmm. go into a museum and there are no people of color and they're amongst the staff for example i mean also amongst the exhibits let's be fair as <laughs> um, if if there are no people who can make you feel like you belong then that's a real problem now unfortunately mm-hmm. at some point someone's going to have to start so that other yeah. people can feel welcome mm-hmm. and that's of course, the really tricky bit that we're in. And then we start going down the path again where it almost becomes a tokenism of, well, I see that you're the foreigner here, so it's up to you <laughs> to make anyone else feel welcome. And, and also at the same time, could you please uh, do all the yeah. conservation work on yes, any of these but, objects that we feel that you might have yeah. to? <laughs> but also tone this all down a little bit because like, yeah. we don't want to cause any mm-hmm. fuss. Yeah. Uh, but like, yeah. So, no pressure. <laughs> so, I mean, this is the slight problem. And I think this is something that I said in the diversity panel was that unfortunately... The, the diversity that already exists, we do kind of need to be beacons of it and we do need mm-hmm. to make sure mm-hmm. that we are visible mm-hmm. because we need people to know that we exist because that way yeah. they can feel welcome as well. That's mm-hmm. kind of a big ask of like not very many people. That's a huge ask to say that, okay, well, I want disabled conservatives to say that they're disabled so that other people with disabilities can say that, oh, wow, I didn't know that I could even consider this a career path but here's someone else with similar difficulties Mm -hmm. who are totally making this work this is Mm -hmm. something I can do etc and that's true of all of these different like characteristics that it would be great if we could be really visible about it which is why I wore my special badges to the I um, loved your special badges to the Icon 19 thing for example and stuff like that just in in an attempt to be more visible well one one way we can sort of increase the inclusivity that we have in in our labs, in our curatorial um, actions, in our exhibit designs, is to just make community consultation a more regular thing. We do have that, obviously, for certain exhibits and and big name things that are happening in institutions, but I think it just needs to become a regular thing, like just maybe once a month or once every three months, open the doors to the lab and have a whole bunch of objects out and invite people to come in and say, what do you think we should do with this? Because here in Canada, we have really incredible Indigenous collections in a lot of our major institutions. And it's been a long time in the making, but we have these communities who are finally feeling comfortable enough to go into these institutions and to interact with their own culture and be like, you know, we we don't want you to do this and we don't want you to do that, but we want you to do this action instead. And we still have a lot of work to do here in Canada, but it, it would be nice if the doors were more open and accessible for the public to come in and say, well, this is technically our collection as a whole. Why are you treating it this way? Why can't you do this instead? I mean, that's a really you know good I mean? point because, I mean, we all started as the public. It's not like mm-hmm. we were born yeah. to be conservatives. Like, this is exactly. something we became mm-hmm. later. But at first, we needed to find out about conservation, that it's a thing, and then mm-hmm. decide that there was something for us. And we started mm-hmm. as the public. So really, we just need to be more publicly visible and happy to have these conversations and happy to welcome people of all sorts into the museum to start with or wherever mm-hmm. we work. Like, obviously, we work in different settings. I have two things to say. Firstly, my museum has a window into the conservation studio and we get a 
loads and loads of school groups come in mm -hmm. during mm -hmm. term time it's like at least three a week and these are huge school groups and they come and they do the gallery tour and there's various events and stuff that the museum runs for them and then they come upstairs to the, the top floor and they all gather around the window and they stare in at us and they wave and sometimes <laughs> they bang on the window which is annoying but you know who cares and you wave back and then they go away and that could easily have been the first time they've been to a museum and in that case definitely the first time that they had encountered conservation as a thing before and certainly to see it happening that is a fantastic way to start as a school yeah. the second thing I wanted to say is I would really love it if there was data and I doubt that there is I would really love it if there was data on where does the problem or, or what's the most common struggle do That's we a have big question. it is a huge a it's a huge question sorry so I'll make yeah. it more specific I would love to know do people of different backgrounds and communities start conservation and then struggle too much to make it work do as in do they go through university or do they look at university and then think I just can't make this work do they not know about it at all do they just simply not feel welcome because I'd really like to know where to target or where museums can help to target the help for this this is going to be really unhelpful but from my own experiences it's been a mix of all of them yeah yeah, it will be. But in particular, coming from a, I'm going to center myself again in this narrative, which is something I, I feel a little uncomfortable doing, but you know, I'm here, so I need to speak up about it. But uh, coming from a Indian background, from a Punjabi background, there is a lot of stigma around the arts because they're considered low-paying jobs. So right off the bat, when I when I started going into, I started history in my undergrad, and then I did a degree in museum studies, and then I did my master's. And throughout the whole process, I had people within my family and within my community being like, "Well, you're never going to make enough to support a family, and you're going to stick out like a sore thumb. You should instead be going into things like medicine and engineering and law, where you'll be able to make a lot of money and." support your, your family. So I think some of the, the reason why diversity can be so hard in terms of getting people in the door is because there's all these cultural stigmas attached to the lower paying jobs. Mm -hmm. And so it ties back again to that financial discussion where the knock-on effect, the domino effect of just increasing the pay and, and respecting people for the amount of education and work and experience that they have on a financial level would, would just do wonders for increasing the number of diverse backgrounds coming into the museum sector as a whole. That's really interesting. That's because that's not something that I can, the sort of uh, perception of a lower or a high paying job is not something that I had no, considered. No, well, your parents are artists. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, and I was brought up with, you're not going to art school. That's not happening because they did and they knew that blah, 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 blah. That's, a, that's an aside. But what I mean is <laughs> I hadn't considered that, obviously I'd considered that not being not working in a high paid job would be a problem because mm -hmm. obviously it's a problem but i hadn't considered the the sort of the problems that working mm -hmm. in a lower paid the perceptions of the problems that working in a lower paid job could cause i mean we also live in this very patriarchal society as a whole that's very heteronormative as well and it, it doesn't recognize difference as a good thing yeah so yeah. we are now like our our generation and, and younger than us are all doing incredible work to 
make those differences visible and to celebrate them. But I think we still have, I don't want to say issues, but like older generations, boomers and, and up have a hard time connecting because they grew up in a society that was very strict in its understanding of what was acceptable. So I'm hoping that, you know, my nephews, when they come of age, if they want to be artists and they want to just go out and live bohemian lifestyles, that, that that's something that's going to be totally acceptable to them, regardless of the culture that they're growing up in. But you never know. I mean, we have to do what we can today in hopes that tomorrow, 10 years down the road, 100 years down the road, the generations coming after us have it better off than we do. And that's that's true across any kind of struggle in any kind of society. Yeah, that's a very good point. A very, very nicely put as well. So at the discussion group, Icon wanted positive solutions. I like that because that's, you know... Looking forward, right? It's looking forward. <laughs> it's absolutely essential that we have conversations about diversity and that we shout about it and everything but at the end of the day we also need things that people can do that employers can do changes that can be made and one of those things that we did come up with is apprenticeships that was something that was said and I I don't think that it's I think you're gonna ultimately have the same initial issues of like we need to be welcoming to everyone yeah but I think it's going to be difficult to market this in a way that gets the kind of initial uptake that we're after. We've got to take the first steps. The first steps are going to be a little bit clunky and a little bit like self-aware. And that is just a process that we have to go through before we can come to a more true diversity. But I do think they would help. No, absolutely. absolutely. They would. They would, absolutely. I think and paid apprenticeships, right? Paid, paid apprenticeships. Yes, that's, <laughs> the, that's the, the yes. that's the main thing, isn't it? It is. They are paid apprenticeships. Recently, um, Patrick from Icon sent out an email saying that um, there's their uh, the apprenticeships have been improved, and the, essentially there's a spreadsheet going out to employers to ask people whether they're fit for purpose and whether they meet the needs of the employers and and if they'd consider taking people on if they would consider taking people on yeah Yeah. so it's at the developmental stage but it's moving moving far more than it was this time last year absolutely um and i'm hoping we'll see them in the next year yeah that would be great i don't know whether they've said how many there will be I think that vastly depends on who steps up right. and says that, yeah. yes, we'll host these. Mm-hmm. Or I don't know what the plan is for that side. I am hopeful that people will be offering these. Especially the big institutions that can afford to host uh, students on a regular basis. Because it's understandable for smaller ones that are like 100% charities, local authorities. They can't always host students. So when they can, super kudos to them. But for the big ones that do have a steady stream of income and funding, like we'd love to see more. Yeah. Love, love, love to see more apprenticeships in uh, institutions like those. Absolutely. There is the uh, bringing, talking again of the UK, uh, I'm sure there must be like an AIC equivalent or something. There are the ICON internships as well. And here in Canada, there's um, this government uh, project, I suppose you could call it, called Young Canada Works. And essentially what it is, is a government funded, although some of the funds are matched by the uh, museums and institutions as well. It's a program that matches students, uh, high school students, university students with summer jobs in heritage institutions across the country. That's really incredible. And it is it is under the government mandate. It is under, I think, Canadian Heritage. And they also have a second stream called Young Canada Works Building Careers in Heritage. And it's meant for recently graduated um people. And then it creates these, you know, like six month, one year, uh, apprenticeships, internships, fellowships type set up contracts for 
new graduates in conservation, in collections care, in curatorial programs. And it's, like I said, it's funded by the government. And, and so our museums have that support uh, from bodies that are outside of just the institutions themselves and our conservation and, and museum associations. So maybe if we can shift focus to not just having all the costs of hosting an internship on our own institutions, but have them be maybe from the philanthropic side of a large uh, company or from the government or, you know, from from somewhere else, then that way we can also increase the number of apprenticeships. Uh, something else I just wanted to say about apprenticeships is that I was talking to, and I'm not going to name drop it because I, I don't I have an ask. Um, <laughs> yeah, fair. But I asked a university that provides a conservation degree whether an apprenticeship would be a suitable equivalent to A-levels when accepting mm-hmm. them into the degree because that would take away from the uh, sec- one stage of the secondary education thing. So you would essentially be able to get a paid position straight out of GCSEs in the UK and this person said yes that that oh, that, that would be um, yeah. a sort of or equivalent experience in quote marks so that I think is very positive but I don't think that's not well known though we might not have broken through the your job requirements is a degree in conservation mm-hmm. thing we may yet break through that you also have to have had A-levels and and everything through that stage. That kind of goes back to the class discussion from earlier because Mm -hmm. there's so much emphasis placed on higher education and the importance of having an education that uh, we kind of tend to leave behind the people who've taken alternative pathways into careers like this. And so hopefully this new apprenticeship scheme of of saying, yes, that is a way that you can get into higher education and into the career sector as a whole. Let's just show that we value everybody across the board. And let's Mm -hmm. not forget that is kind of how conservation got started. It's not like like we started with no let's have a university degree in this exactly that's not how this began yeah no so it's not about conservation and i think actually maybe that's interesting i was talking to a friend um this morning actually Mm. who is a curator for a museum that i won't name again because i haven't asked um (laughs) um, and he is bame and he got into museums when he was in his early 20s through a bursary grant slash traineeship (laughs) very vague on the information here through the museums association oh right Mm -hmm. and this was something that the museums association was doing in order to increase diversity in the curatorial profession Mm -hmm. with the purpose and with the mindset of well, if curators are shaping the stories and being the face of museums and interpreting the objects, you really want a diverse set of yeah, people of <laughs> because yeah, of otherwise you're just going to get Absolutely. the same stories recycled yeah, yeah. over and over of course. again. Mm-hmm. Um, I was really interested in that because that's not something that's been done in conservation yet, but mm-hmm. it's it's really possible. And I wonder whether yeah, we point. haven't considered it yet or we haven't got there yet because mm-hmm. we're not considered, conservatives aren't necessarily considered as people who interpret objects. Yeah. We oh, passively so conserve. We are hidden. We passively conserve and there's only one outcome, surely, blah, 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 blah. But that's not the case, obviously, especially yeah. with the growing growing range of different jobs that conservators do. Yeah. Because we're going to interpret the object differently mm-hmm. and that interpretation will affect our choices and blah blah blah. Exactly. Things that we know. Yeah. So I, I just wanted to slot that as a as a little yeah. um, but I do wonder if that's something where we can apply. Mm-hmm. I absolutely agree. I think at the same time, you could also look to use that horrible term, the trickle down effect of traineeships like that. Because if you're bringing more and more 
curators of different backgrounds into a museum, well, then the way that they look at the people around them working with them in collections and in conservation will alter who is being hired. So hopefully that that um, if we don't end up having traineeships in conservation specifically in the near future, that these other people coming in, that these diverse groups of people coming in at other levels in the museum has that trickle down effect. Yeah, that's a really good point. So I kind of wanted to talk about what we can do on a more kind mm -hmm. of organizational level. So mm -hmm. um, uh, I talked uh, to someone who works for CIFA and we're going to listen to that interview now. So uh, my name is Hannah Cobb and I'm a, a senior lecturer in archaeology at the University of Manchester. I teach field practice and that kind of thing. But I am also the chair of the Chartered Institute for Archaeologists Equality and Diversity Group. And I'm probably just going to refer to the Chartered Institute for Archaeologists as CIFA from now on. So it's not such a massive mouthful. So Hannah, tell me more about what is this group and how did it come to be? Well, it started in 2015. I think what's really interesting about archaeology is that there's such an amazing body of work already that shows the massive amount of inequalities in archaeology. So, you know, starting right back with all the sort of early feminist literature from the 1980s and in the UK from 1997 onwards, we've got profiling the profession. So we've got an amazing body of statistical data that shows the changing demographics in terms of gender, ethnicity and disability uh, and age as well, all the way through from 1997 in those different repeated profiling the profession statistics. And I I've done a little bit of research myself with uh, a study called Digging Diversity, where profiling the profession asks for labour market data from employers. But mine was a sort of more bottom up. So talking to people in the workforce and also talking to students as well. And all of these things basically will say the same stuff. And also there's fantastic people like the British women archaeologists who have also been doing statistical analysis and CIFA's diggers forum as well, who've also done, again, lots of studies about, you know, people digging and having children and things like that as mm. well. So there's there's a really good sort of swathe of data out there that tells us very clearly that archaeology massively lacks diversity. Mm. Um, and I sort of got to a point, having done the, the first digging diversity study and reading all of that and teaching all of that, sort of point of frustration of thinking we need, something needs to, to happen. Uh, and there is various people doing lots of things uh, in various places and doing things brilliantly. And I sort of felt like, our professional body needed to reflect all those other things that were going on. Yeah. Uh, and so with a few other people, uh, we set up the Chartered Institute for Archaeologists, the Quality and Diversity Group. Uh, and CIFA have a whole series of special interest groups. And so it was formed within the framework of, of that, although I think all of us agree, including CIFA as a whole, that equality and diversity isn't just a special interest. No. Uh, but that's kind of the, the governance structures in which we had to, to, to form the, the group. Absolutely. And we work very closely with a lot of the other groups. So we've done things like run mental health first aid training. So we ran that, uh, have run that twice, once with the voluntary and community group and once with the Scottish group within CIFA. And we've sort of worked with people like the Diggers Forum um, to look at sort of various sort of problems and uh, run, run conference sessions and things like that together. That's the backstory. <laughs> that was a long and waffling backstory of why <laughs> we need, needed, why I felt, felt the group was very 
necessary. Yeah. And then since we've formed, I think we formed with the idea of just doing some things within under the umbrella of, of CIFA within our professional body to think about what we can do to diversify the profession. But actually, we've ended up doing a couple of things in terms of diversifying the profession. But also, we've talked to CIFA themselves about their conference and practices at their conference, talking about things like their code of conduct. So just contributing to those kind of things mm. uh, and existing principles that they had uh, and looking at how they can be made more robust in terms of equality and diversity. So we, we've been doing sort of two different things, really, looking at things that can be done to support developing equality and diversity across the profession, but also things that can be done within CIFA's own practice as well to, to change that. And that's been our kind of what we've been doing for since 2015. Do you have any good practical examples of things that you've tackled? We've done quite a lot of different things since we started. So we we've advised on changes in CIFA's own practice. So in terms of its uh, code of conduct and its group constitution, we've contributed to a CIFA ethics practice paper uh, and, and statements about conference accessibility and panel guidance and conference zero tolerant approaches to harassment at conference. Uh, and then we've done all sorts of things where we've done things like we've connected with other external bodies, so particularly people like Prospect, who are the union for people working in commercial archaeology, mm. uh, and RICS, the Royal Institute for Chartered Surveyors. We've spoken to them because they have a, a really interesting equality and diversity scheme where they offer internal, uh, they offer a sort of uh, ability to do to audit your own equality and diversity. So that was quite interesting finding out about that. And we worked with a whole series of other organisations. So we work with people like Trailblazers, British Women's Archaeologists, the Enabled Archaeology Foundation, people like that who sort of exist already, the, mm. uh, the Badger Respect campaign. And I, I'd like to think that we do as much as we can to support and big them up when yeah. we encounter contexts where it's worth that and hopefully vice versa. We supported the Trailblazers Raising Horizons exhibition being at the CIFA conference in 2017. So lots of things like that. We run all sorts of sort of conference sessions at CIFA that are sort of uh, active workshop training about diversity, good practice in, in, in equality and diversity. Uh, and we've spoken at lots of other conferences about this too. We're in pr the process of sort of developing the CIFA's guidance on disabilities, working with disabled employees. And then we've got a website where we sometimes have guest bloggers and things like that. We're really active particularly in Twitter. Uh, and we've had representation at Pride in the last few years with the Museums Association. And we've consulted on the uh, individual chartered archaeologist proposals as well that, uh, that CIFA have been put, have put forward. So, and we're in the process of just putting together unconscious bias training. And we're also doing a whole thing about decolonising and hoping to make a kind of decolonising toolkit. The Women's Mentoring Network in Archaeology is definitely worth flagging up. In 2015, there was this CIFA conference session that was all about how we can smash the glass ceiling. And one of the things that was mooted then was the need for, for women to support one another and to have some kind of mentoring network. And I think partly the, the Women's Mentoring Network comes out of those conversations, but also various other people who have just been really keen to have that kind of thing. It's a Facebook group, so it's very informal, uh, and it's a closed Facebook group and it's for, for anyone who identifies as a woman so it's also got trans members and so it's 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 really a very inclusive group and it's there for sort of people who are looking for specific mentorings but it's also a, a place for people to sort of ask for sort of 
advice, professional advice or advice on lack of professionalism that they've encountered and what a good way to deal with that is and things. And it's, I, I think that is a, a fantastic, uh, a fantastic and galvanizing resource. Um, and a, a, a parallel group, it's probably also worth mentioning, is the Badger Respect Facebook group, which is also a closed women's Facebook group and, and a sort of place, again, to be a sort of sounding board. So, again, these kind of Facebook networks are about sharing sharing the resources that are already out there. That's um, a good point, so, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. Y- you do see it across the museum sector. Like, there are a number, a number of these sort of support networks that uh, we have talked about on the episode, like Museum Detox and Museum as Muck and stuff like that. And it is really interesting. I would personally love to see um, conservation groups that are similar, maybe around, you know, supporting people with disabilities or, you know, because obviously conservation being a very female uh, dominant uh, profession right now, I feel like maybe the the networking angle isn't really where it's at for us, but maybe it is uh, for the kind of at the moment underrepresented groups that yeah. uh, we can come together in similar support networks. So, Oh, absolutely. Maybe- I would point people to, sorry, people to the um, Enabled Archaeology Facebook group as well. So um, extremely sadly, uh, the founder of that, Teresa O'Mahony, um, passed away uh, a few weeks ago. Oh. Um, but Teresa was a absolute powerhouse of activism for the rights of archaeologists with different uh, well uh, enabled archaeologists was was her term mm. and so the enabled archaeology forum is really sort of a, a, a Facebook place for um, uh, uh, people with with any kind of disability to uh, sort of again discuss and receive sort of support uh, in, in exactly the same kind of networking way and Teresa had, had hopes for um, the enabled archaeology foundation so I think the Facebook group is the enabled archaeology group and then her her hope was uh, to develop an enabled archaeology foundation to support archaeologists uh, with disabilities within the workplace and to get people back into work and uh, you know hopefully that will be able to fulfill some of her, her legacy in the future oh that's wonderful we were conscious that as we were doing all of these smaller things, that to make an effect at a larger scale, we needed to 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 get more people round the table than just CIFA and to have a conversation across the profession. Mm. So the thing that I think, you know, I'm I'm I feel really proud that we did this was that last year in 2018 in in July, we held a cross sector action meeting on equality and diversity and inclusion, and we brought together a really broad swathes of people from across the profession, people from sort of big heritage organisations, people from national government, a local government, so Algeo were represented, CBA were there, then sort of independent people, lots of different people, uh, lots of different units, and various academic institutions were represented. And we, we, have, we sat down in that meeting and we said, what can we do to achieve some kind of cross-sector agreement about equality and diversity? What can we actually do about this and who's going to do it what are we going to do it was a really productive meeting I think one of the most productive things that came out of it was that what we need to do is have a it's really easy to say it's not so easy to do it but we need to have a a full culture change on equality and diversity that mirrors the culture change that happened on health and safety you know 20 years ago or so where it it, now nobody would go down an unsured uh, hole with no PPE and you know those kind of things just wouldn't happen that's a good point 
point, wouldn't yeah. you, those? Yeah, and that kind of change in in terms of equality and diversity needs to be the same thing. And so that was that, that was this big meeting. One of the things that came out of that was that then CIFA and FAME, so the Federation of Archaeological Managers in England, and Prospect, and a group of other people formed an industry working party and put together a statement which committed to working on equality and diversity and to to support that kind of culture change, to, to support enacting that culture change. I feel really proud that we've sort of worked with CIFA to, towards achieving that and that that's really been something that has been achieved by voices across the profession. And I think the next thing now is to see what happens from that. But I think that's going to be the, the next thing. If there's anyone out there who wants to be a change maker like that and who wants to set something like this up or become involved even with what you're doing, what would be your advice to them, do you think? That the culture change analogy was a really useful one. And I think to have that kind of culture change, you need to have everyone on board. And so having sort of big, open conversations is really important, but also sort of that kind of constant activism uh, as well. So I think... You know, we that, the fact that that statement happened was brilliant, but now we need to make sure that that statement take you know is, is enacted. And there's lots of different people who I think are sort of doing such a brilliant job of that, using things like social media to call out inequalities. That's probably a, a really sort of good place to start. So that, start start the conversation on a formal level. Keep up the activism by sort of letter writing, social media, and that that kind of thing. You know, it's really good to hear what other people in the heritage sector are doing and, you know, in adjacent fields. You know, archaeology has a lot of the same struggles that conservation does. And I think it's really good to hear that, you know, you're making progress and what people can do and what they are doing. Oh, thank you. I do think, though, that the proof will be in the pudding as well. It feels like this is a... If it, I, probably everyone who's in the midst of these kind of things feels like this is a time where loads of action is occurring. It definitely feels like this, but I think for us as well, we probably need to continually keep checking ourselves as well. So the next time that profiling the profession or digging diversity run, we need to see the changes in the statistics. And if, the, the, if, if things haven't changed, then we've, we've not done enough. And also, I think probably sort of making connections between different organisations. So, you know, um, I know that there's already connections between ICON and CIFA, but in terms of sort of equality and diversity, the equality and diversity group within CIFA, you know, I'm, we're happy to chat to anyone really. So, uh, so just give us a shout. So we can come at this from sort of from the top organisational level at the same time as from the bottom, from the, the people who are applying to jobs. Grassroots. And mm-hmm. Grassroots. Yeah. So do we have ideas of what we can do from the grassroots? I think talk about diversity, like actually bring it yeah. up. And, and again, actively, if you're recruiting, have an open mind. Yeah. And don't hire someone <laughs> who looks exactly like you. Yeah. Uh- <laughs> and remember that people are more than just the boxes that they check on the form. You know, people are like onions. We're multi-layered. Even when it comes to like job adverts, advertising them widely uh, make yeah. sure people are aware of where to look for these mm-hmm. jobs even mm-hmm. something as simple as that can really help and everybody should take the opportunity to educate themselves as well mm, so if that means just you know going to your local library and reading books by writers of color or you know writers of uh, a different religion than you or writers who have uh, opposing viewpoints and morals than you like take the opportunities to do that listen to podcasts made by creators who don't look like you who don't think like you um, I'd just like to take a second here and say for people in North America, I heartily recommend um, the
the Media Indigena and the All My Relations podcasts because they are created, produced, presented by Indigenous um, peoples here on Turtle Island. And they are incredible. They've been eye-opening for me in the last couple of years that I've been listening to them. And I, I think that we should all take the opportunity where we can to decolonize our own thinking. Uh, the book White Fr- Fragility has been out for a while, and I know several people have read, read that one. I haven't had the opportunity yet. But you know, any anything you can to learn more about something that's not the way you think, take that opportunity. You don't have to advertise it. You can just do it in your own spare time, but just read something, listen to something, keep your mind open. And I think from there, as soon as we start widening our, our worldviews, then we will start seeing much more tangible change along the way. Yeah, that's a good point. And also build up colleagues who, you know, yes, you know, who come from diverse backgrounds, like celebrate them, make them feel included, yeah. go the extra mile. They're your colleagues. Jesus, help them. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And listen to them when they speak up saying, oh, maybe you shouldn't do this because, you know. Uh, Also, a huge shout out to uh, the team at Museum Detox, who also do a lot of really, really good stuff. Mm -hmm. Hi, guys. Uh, Yeah, Mm -hmm. in in, uh, decolonizing museums and the workforce and just generally shouting in a really, really good way. Mm -hmm. They do great work, basically. Check them out. I feel like Twitter is a really, really powerful sphere here. And that sounds really, really millennial. But <laughs> no, but it is. Social media is where we can get our voices out there. Yeah. Maybe another thing to mention is that maybe don't feel discouraged if you come across people who don't see the point of diversity. Mm-hmm. Like Maybe just tune them out and ignore them. Or better yet, maybe try to educate them. If if it drives you too insane, maybe try to ignore it. And yeah. if you feel strong don't enough, don't answer late at night. After if you a glass feel of strong wine. enough, educate them. But yes. don't do um, it publicly, though. Don't do it publicly, though, because more often than not, at least in my own experience, a slightly awkward private conversation will do so much more for nudging a person into a into recognizing that their behavior is problematic than publicly calling them out because then you're you're putting them into a corner. So it, it's going to be awkward. It's going to hurt on both ends, but have that private conversation where you say, hey, maybe, you know, this is something you should think about. It, it hurt my feelings when you said it. You know what? That's a really good that's point. Really that's nice. some good soft skills yeah. there, I yeah, have to yeah. say. We all know that it's it's not enough to not be racist. We all have to be actively anti-racist and actively anti-classist exactly. and, and acti- anti-homophobic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it's hard. It is hard work. And like I understand that. You understand that. I think we all know that it is really hard to do that, to change your mindset. So if this is something that you want to do or something that you're open to doing to change your mindset, just like Chloe said, like listen first. It's not going to be immediate. It's going to take time. I'm I'm sitting here at age 27 as a brown woman, and I am still decolonizing colonizing my mindset and I still have so much work to do. So just recognize that it's a process and that no one's going to be perfect, but you just have to try. That's all we ask. You just try. I just wanted to to say thank you to the two of you, to the C Word podcast, um, for having me on for this discussion. It's it's been absolutely incredible. And I'd just like to take a moment and ask the audience that if if I said anything in error, if I if I said anything that you disagree with, please, 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 please come to me on social media um, and let me know. I want to fix my thinking. Um, I want to be better. So you know, educate me. And I know that's asking a lot, and that that's unpaid labor. But at least point me in the direction of some resources and and help me better myself so that I can better represent, well, not just brown women, but just, you know, people in general. So yes, thanks again. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. And Thank also, you, you're very welcome. Also, that does extend to the both of us as well. Like, Yeah, please, comments and corrections yes. are always absolutely... You know, um, come and find us. You know who we are. So, you know, because mm-hmm. we too need to improve ourselves. 
Earlier, we did talk a little bit about class, and I thought this is definitely a topic that I would like to discuss in more detail. So I found someone to talk to. Sam, would you like to introduce yourself? My name's Sam Evans. I'm a PhD researcher at Birkbeck University in the Department of Organisational Psychology. I've been researching class for the last three years in museum work. I did actually used to work in museums probably for about 15 years. I worked in various organisations, but I, I left... Oh, I'm thinking probably about 10 years, perhaps longer ago than that. Mm. And my job was marketing and I, I sort of got to a certain point and then sort of left the museum sector and went and worked in the charitable sector. <clears throat> then I left there and decided I wanted to actually become an occupational psychologist. So it was a complete career change. Yeah. So I did a, an MSc in occupational psychology. I and mean, in that I did research actually into age and gender. But what was interesting in that research was that people talked a lot about class so when I was putting together ideas for my PhD I looked into class and I looked into how it had been researched in occupational psychology and it's been very under-researched which is quite surprising because there's a big connection between class and work Mm. you know often work is used to to class people yes but there's been very little research into the sort of processes by which people actually class each other at mm. work so I mean one of the the issues with class and, and this came up a lot in my research is the sort of difficulty of measuring class and of defining class you know it's something that's actually been debated for 150 years since the time of Karl Marx so I don't think there's going to be one definite measure of class coming up soon no but we all sort of understand class, even if we don't talk about it, as you've sort of mentioned that class is a bit taboo. And this is one of the things I think within occupational psychology, which, which you know, looks at how people operate in the workplace. A lot of the disciplines sort of emerged at a time when class became very silenced politically. And, and in the UK, this has sort of happened since the time of end of the last century. There's this sort of been this idea that class doesn't matter anymore, that other areas um, of identity matter more so. Mm. And, you know, this this may be, may be the case, but what's happened is sort of difficulty in knowing how to research class and also that work has changed so much and the sort of traditional measures of class, different occupations have not really kept up with the changes in work. That's yeah. interesting that you say that because I do mm. remember... A this is years ago now, but I feel like there was yeah. some sort of quiz or survey or something you could take and yeah. it was suggesting a new class. So it was yeah. trying to, it was trying not to do the middle class, working class thing, but instead yeah. proposed new categories. And I remember yeah. everyone I knew taking the quiz and disagreeing with it and, you know, all these <laughs> things. And it was really fascinating to kind of see how people were trying to unpick class as a topic. That's probably the BBC Great British Class Survey. That sounds um, right. They used the work of, um, it's sociologist Pierre Bourdieu so they were looking at not just how work classes people or occupational category but the sort of capital that people have so um, including in that was economic capital which is obviously sort of money but they were also looking at wealth and different assets um, social capital which is the sort of connections that people have the, the who you know mm. And then cultural capital, which is sort of quite a broad term to include things like educational qualifications, sort of cultural habits, you know, and and, and also accent um, and the clothes that people yeah. wear. So they were looking at the sort of connections between the type of work people do and all those different forms of capital. And from that, I think they came up with seven different classes. I'm, I'm interested in looking at not having a sort of pre-constructed idea of class as a category. I wanted to look at class in context. Mm. And because I've worked in museums, and because I know also that class had not been really discussed within 
the sector, you know, when I worked in museums, it was the, the sort of narrative was around social inclusion, but we weren't really talking about class then. Yeah. Um, and there's very little talk of the workforce. It was yeah. The focus was always on the audiences. So I knew that there was probably a, a sort of a gap there. I'm interested in understanding how, from a work point of view, what does it take for somebody to actually get into a particular occupational field like working in museums? How do they get on? And what might be the barriers in terms of um, what capital types of capital are you expected to have? I'm interested in understanding how the sort of overall field is constructed. So in order to understand what might be a source of inequality, you need to understand the different hierarchies you know what type of work is valued above other types of work and why is that so it's it's almost rather than looking at categories it's looking at the processes and the sort of discourses around how people in museums value different types of work what are the discourses that um, shape you know that those valuing processes there was a huge response to people taking part and I think in part that was because people hadn't had an opportunity to talk about class before yeah or not very not very much so that the thing that I sent around to participants which was just looking at the sort of how is museum work classed mm. that's really just looking at a small part of the data so there is still a lot more analysis to do but from the the sort of analysis that I've done so far you could definitely say that there you know it's a very differentiated field it's quite divided in some ways and there's very definite hierarchies there's sort of quite an interesting relationship i think between the sort of idea that in museum work it the, the sort of higher status types of work are those that are more very particular to museums that are very specialist to museums mm. such as curatorial such as conservation work this is the work that you know i asked participants to actually map which work they thought was the higher status so the higher status positions like curator and conservative sort of the roles that are very specialist to the field and, and what they they do is actually lend distinction to museums they make museum work a very sort of specialist and distinctive type of work but they're obviously the most sort of sought after roles. And what seems to have happened is that as more and more people, there is a narrative about more and more people wanting to do museum work. So the sort of goalposts, if you like, have shifted. So actually to do these types of work, you have to have, you know, perhaps a degree might have sufficed. Now people need masters in heritage or, you know, a specialist postgraduate and increasingly a PhD. Because of the changes in education, this obviously costs people money. So what you have is this, you know, to achieve these high status roles, which aren't very well paid, you need to have increasingly amounts of economic capital. And people talk quite a lot about either having parents or a partner that could support them. Yeah. It's almost like an invisible cost of, you know, a career in museums. Other people made a choice that rather than going for these very sort of high status but difficult to achieve roles, um, that they, you know, just working museums would be fine. So um, you have, and this is what I did, um, was uh, marketing roles or sort of general managerial positions or fundraising. So these types of roles, because they have, it's less specialist, you know, there's, there's, there's a sort of different relationship in terms of supply and demand. So these people can, can actually command slightly higher salaries. They're not quite as high status but um, they have a higher salary. So you have this sort of inverse relationship between status and yeah. money. <laughs> yes. um, it's a choice, but it's really what it means is that museum work is quite a privileged sort of work because to be in a position to sacrifice income, to you know spend a lot of money on achieving that sort of work, that's easier for some people than it is for others. And this is a very sort of strong theme coming out of the data. 
there's a sort of difference between how museums as employers are actually classed. And I've looked at that as well. You know, lots of people say, for example, I did this myself, you know, as a marketing person and you could choose to work for different types of organisations, but working for a national museum would give you that higher status. Mm-hmm. And equally, people talked about national museums also, you know, capitalising on that so that actually for people to take a job at a national museum, they probably have to accept a slightly lower salary. Mm. But it's still seen as actually a, a sort of higher status position and therefore more valued. Yeah, that's a, that's um, a, that's a very familiar <laughs> pattern in terms of conservation as well. There's this idea that if you're an individual employee, you know, if you want those high status positions, you know, you sacrifice the economic return. And a lot of people talk to me about never being able to have a mortgage, you know, not, not being able to do those things. And some people have left the sector so they could actually, yeah. you know, live but if you contrast this with institutions having this sort of high status like national museums they can capitalize on that they will be able to um, use their brand to basically maximize income and maximize profile so there is something around this sort of division really between the employer and the employee and i think this is happening in lots of areas of work and probably in cultural work Although I think there's quite a sort of collaborative culture in museums, there's not a strong sense of, it's not very unionised. In terms of that sort of old idea of class being between, you know, capital and labour, which is the sort of more you know, Marxist idea of class, then that relationship is obviously there, but it, you know, because it's the employers that are, that are maximising the, the sort of passion and commitment of employees who want to work and will do so for, for very little money. Yeah. And this is partly because I think people who work in museums, <clears throat> once you get into museums, or, you know, even if you're trying to get into museums, there's, there is this sort of strong passion or sort of commitment and belief in what museums do and what they're all about. And, you know, allied to that, this sort of understanding that, you know, museums are in a sort of very poor and precarious funding situation. I think I think, a, I think as a sector, yeah. we do make an awful lot of excuses in terms of, oh, there have been funding cuts and no one's very well mm. off. And ultimately, it just feeds into this that they're allowed to pay us less. Yeah. A fascinating kind of martyrdom that I find in the museum sector and not very many other places. One of the things, the next bit of analysis I'm looking at is the sort of ideas about what it takes to get in and get on. So I've talked a little bit about how, you know, if you, this sort of increasing need for cultural capital, you know, increasing amounts of qualifications. I, I think also there's a sense of needing to almost define your career by staying in museums. And I think it, there's a sort of fear amongst people that if they, they find a job in museums, they need to stay because once they leave, it's very difficult to get back in. Or you you, you have this idea of career being de- defined by the amount of time you've spent in, in the sector. So there's, there's not a lot of sort of moving in and moving out. You know, what I'm finding is that people talk about their career, and this is what I've collected is interviews with people and their, their sort of career narratives, which, which are sort of quite fractured and chaotic um <laughs> chaotic is a very good word <laughs> yes and, you know it seems to be these people are, are, are sort of accumulating a huge amount of skill and experience but they're not fine they're not finding it easy to piece these together in any sort of direction and i think for people you know feeling like you know if you need income you need to pay your rent with something because you don't have resource to rely on from your parents or any inheritance you know you're going to need to find a job somewhere and i think with sort of increasing amounts of work that's projectified you know that everything's sort of um, on contract 
gaps or short term, um, then people somehow, how can they manage those sort of gaps and how can they ever have that sort of security? Where do you hope that your research will take you? How, what are you envisaging for the next couple of stages of your research? I still want to analyse data. So the, so the second area is looking at analysing the career narratives of people and how they're talking about their career journeys and also the sort of barriers to getting in and getting on. And then I'm looking at how people talk about class itself. So class is quite strange. I think you mentioned that it can be taboo. And there's this sort of emerging idea as well that whilst, you know, money is, is sort of silenced within museum world and museum work, that also class has been and, and that people feel in order to prove that they're working class they have to it's almost sort of construct a hardship narrative it's almost to say look this is how hard things have been for me they have they feel like they have to prove it so the next two stages are looking at career narratives and then looking at what this means for the individual in terms of where this actually goes I mean obviously I'm doing this as a PhD so I need to write this up as PhD and it has the academic side to it which is making sure that this is like an original contribution to knowledge Mm. Um, but because, you know, people have been so generous in terms of taking part and so interested in this work, and also because, you know, I've worked in the museum sector, I'm very keen that it's actually useful. Yeah. I read somewhere, and this is really, it's not a cop-out, but um, there's a really good book, The Class Ceiling, which is looking at some of these issues in other areas of work. Sam Friedman and Daniel Lorison, and they said that academics are very good at identifying the problems, but not the solutions. Mm. So in a way, that's sort of what I want to do is, is, identify the problem and then put it back over to people in the sector there's a conference in november at the british museum that's looking at diversity and equality in museums so i'm going to do a a small workshop there just to sort of just see what people think might be the solutions i mean i think people in museums are very creative so you know they're best placed to actually come up with what might work and what could be done If people want to know more, is there a place they can go and read up on what you're doing or a blog they can follow or? I think probably to find me on Twitter is the easiest thing to do. So if you look up Sam is at work. Thank you so much for talking to us, Sam. Pleasure. And coming up, an interview with Museum as Muck. My name is Michelle McGraw and I founded Museum as Muck uh, last year. Hi, I'm Kathleen. I am a member of Museum as Muck. From quite early on, I think I was one of the early people to sign up and I'm part of the steering group now. So I was kind of hoping that people who haven't heard of your group before, that you could give them a bit of an introduction to what Museum as Muck is. Museum as Muck essentially is a network of working class museum and gallery professionals We kind of came together back in the summer of 2018. I guess it stemmed from me personally, kind of being in the sector for, you know, over a decade and kind of getting to a point where I was getting a bit sick and tired of the fact that there weren't, you know, as many working class people as there should be. Mm. You know, originally the idea was just to kind of connect with some other working class people and maybe make some friends, share our experiences, kind of make contacts. But it's um, kind of grown massively since then. Now we've got over 400 members um, in the UK, which is amazing. I mean, I was kind of surprised at the response, really. And it was really great to kind of have people getting in touch and saying, you know, that they wanted to be part of it. Yeah. So actually, when I found out that Michelle had started the group, I think I first saw it. There was a tweet from Sarah Wajid, who started Museum Detox. 
And when I saw her um, promoting this group for working class museum people, I was just so excited that it was so that someone had finally put a group together because it was something that I think a few people had sort of talked about. I'd certainly been thinking about it myself as something that was needed in the sector. So, mm. so yeah, as soon as Michelle put it into action, I was raring to go and get involved. I mean, it really does fill a gap. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I think that since the group has been in place, I've had so many conversations with people who are just so thrilled that it exists because mm. it's something that people have felt that they couldn't talk about yeah. within their work and museum careers. Apart from the kind of more of the kind of policy and campaigning stuff, I think the personal impact of it is what's been really really great to see and be a part of the first time i actually saw you guys kind of in the flesh as it were uh, you were at the museums association conference in 2018 that was yeah kind of in june i i kind of put the network together and then we did that in november but we had to put an application in by july so kind of within a month of making connections we kind of had to put together a proposal for an intervention at the festival of change but it it came together and that's where kind of kathleen and some of the other kind of core steering group members came on board and we created an intervention called supermuckers because we wanted to create a kind of engaging tongue-in-cheek activity um, so that people would kind of be drawn in to, to talking about class because it's quite a difficult thing to talk about sometimes. We kind of got props and tabards and even a toy till. Um. <laughs> yeah, so the concept was that it was a supermarket where we could talk about class. So we wanted to play around with some of the as Michelle said, a bit tongue-in-cheek about some of people's ideas about class. So we were wearing tabards and we had lots of props as part of our supermarket, which spoke to a lot of the members' experiences of being working class and their backgrounds growing up. So it was kind of a bit fun and tongue-in-cheek, but also dealing with some quite serious issues and some people's personal experiences that were quite affecting. And it was quite emotional at times to talk about class and talk about people's backgrounds with all of the delegates that were at the conference. Mm. Another level to to the intervention was in response to kind of what we feel is the, the issue that we're dealing with here, which is that 35% of the UK population is working class, whereas only 21% of museum workers are working class. And that's a figure from the panic report of 2018. If people haven't read that, then get on it because it's really important. So what we wanted to do was a bit of live action research. So we had a jobs board in our supermarket where we asked people to identify their background um, so that we could find out, you know, of those 21%, which departments they worked in, because, I mean, we all know from working in museums that actually the majority of working class people are in certain departments such as front of house or security or finance and there's a real lack of representation in leadership positions mm. but there's no evidence or studies to show this at the moment that's a piece of work that needs to be done if anyone wants to jump on that so we kind of did a bit of our own research during the intervention as well which was great because it really got people to think about their position and their privilege because one of the things that you asked was also i want to say what the chief income earner of your household when you were growing up was doing so class is really really difficult to define and difficult to measure and people have kind of used different ways of doing it in the past such as postcodes but that doesn't really work mm. so the most accurate measure that people are working with at the moment is your parents occupation when you were 14 so that's the question that we were asking delegates to to answer and then we use the national statistics socioeconomic classifications to kind of measure measure that so for example if you, the chief owner in your household was a senior manager 
manager um, or chief executive, you're kind of at the top of the strata. Mm. And it goes down three different occupations. So that's really fantastic that you're doing that kind of like, even if it's just preliminary research, that's fantastic. What sort of other things are you doing, you know, right now as, as an organization? Well, we recently had our first AGM, which was in September, which was hosted at the British Museum as part of their national program. We're also going to be present at the, the British Museum National Programs Conference, which is coming up on the 4th of November. Mm. So we are looking to have presence at more big national museum events because I think part of it is about visibility and encouraging people to have these conversations. As we said before, the kind of personal impact of being able to talk to other people who identify as working class is really important. But it's also important that we talk to people who don't identify as working class and particularly people who are in positions of power and authority in museums. Yeah. So alongside our AGM, we also hosted a director's breakfast as part of the BM event. Mm. And that was an opportunity for us to speak to museum directors and HR directors about the positive steps that they can take. Oh, that's really interesting. Yes, we just want to kind of strengthen and consolidate. And we've been doing recruitment for the steering group. So we're kind of, you know, making it a bit more formal. Just to touch on what Kathleen was saying about the 4th of November at the British Museum, that's actually going to be a working class tea party. So that is an event not to be missed. So people need to get on that and come for tea and broken biscuits and have class chats with us. Where are you headed as a group? Like, what are you looking forward to doing in the near future? Like, Well, I think as, as Michelle was just saying, we're looking to expand our steering group a little bit. We'll be looking to them to help shape what we do in the future. We want to have a bit more representation of people in the regions of the UK because we're all London or Southeast based at the moment. Mm. Um, and also looking to diversify the steering group in other ways. So I kind of feel like we can't say too much at the moment because we will be taking on the input of those other people. One other thing that we should mention is that we did recently do a piece of work around creating our manifesto that we should be launching really soon. If people want to join you or find out a bit more about you, where should they go? So there's um, a couple of ways. Everybody and anybody should follow us on Twitter. Um, That's at Museum as Muck. And if you're a mucker, you should um, join the Facebook group, Museum as Muck, or you can email us at museumasmuck at gmail.com. But also any other inquiries, just send us an email and we'll get back to you. Well, thanks so much for talking to us today. No problem. Thank you for having us. When it comes to environmental monitors, I'm a bit confused about the difference between calibration and accuracy. I wonder if you could help me with some tips. So the terms calibration is something we all know is important in conservation when it comes to our environmental monitoring data. When we think about how much effort we spend on collecting the data, you know, downloading, filing and interrogating, the one thing we absolutely want to be sure is that that time is well spent and that the data we've got is accurate. However, I think we could do a little bit better in the sector generally in terms of our precise use of the terms. Accuracy is a measure of how well it records what's actually going on. Now, for some time, an accuracy, if it's consistently inaccurate, is not too bad. A lot of us have our watches or clocks adjusted maybe three minutes too fast in order to get places on time. I certainly do. 
it doesn't mean that it ever shifts. It's always consistently three minutes too fast. So it's not a particular problem. On the other hand, if I always knew it was three minutes out, but I didn't know if it was three minutes fast or three minutes slow, that would be a real problem. There's different things in terms of accuracy, precision and drift that we need to keep our heads around. But none of those are calibration. So what is calibration? Well, calibration is about checking your machine against a standard. Now, your standard could be a good one or your standard could be a bad one. So, for example, what time is it in the morning? You could check against the time at which your cat jumps on you and starts to treadle you. That could be an incredibly precise measurement or it could be standardised against your cat's hungriness, which is all, you know, pretty constant when it comes to cats. On the other hand, you could calibrate your time against um, a very precise measure of time and that would be calibrating against a very reliable standard. So most of the time when we're checking our environmental monitors, we want to calibrate against a very precise track standard. The best of which is one which is traceable, and a mass traceable in the UK. Well, you can say that I've calibrated it against a traceable standard. Now, that's worth doing for a really high quality piece of environmental monitoring equipment, but probably not for a low quality one that we spent 30 quid on, because the calibration process itself will probably cost us more. In the SeaWorld the other day, they were talking about calibration um, and accuracy. And one of the things that people sometimes do is shift around between calibration and adjustment. If I take my logger and I measure it against a very reliable standard, I might know for sure that at 50% relative humidity, it's reading 52. I don't necessarily have to adjust that, especially if I read it at 70% and at 30%, and at both of those conditions, it's 2% above. It means that I can calibrate it, know that it's up by two, but be fairly satisfied that nothing has terribly difficult to interpret. I might then leave it, check it again in six months' time, and if it's still 2% out, in each in exactly the same way across all those three points of measurement then I might be very happy. I do encourage people not to adjust equipment too often because I think that it depending on whether you share equipment depending on how you interpret it it has the potential to allow measurements to drift so that if something is wrong by two up and then three down and then two up and then three down you won't notice it because you keep adjusting it. So calibration is checking against the standard that standard can be good or bad. Adjustment is changing your readings to match that standard. Adjustment is not necessary for calibration. And accuracy is not the same as calibrated. So a logger might be calibrated, but might be a very cheap piece of kit and may only have an accuracy of plus or minus three, even less, say, cold temperatures. And it can be a low accurate logger, even if it is calibrated. There are lots of ways of calibrating. I have to say that this um, soluble salts method is one that you really have to read around a little bit in order to get it right in terms of the air mixing and things like that. So if the accuracy of your logger is incredibly important to you, then having it checked against a traceable standard is a great thing. You might then use that as a transfer calibration. That means you take your well-calibrated, accurate, expensive bit of kit and check all your cheaper bits of kit against it. That's a transfer calibration. And if you find that one or two bits of kit are considerably out, perhaps checking them over two or three days, then maybe the answer is to replace the kit rather than to um, adjust if you find it's just not a reliable piece of kit. So that's, I hope, a very quick introduction to the difference between calibration and adjustment and accuracy. Over and out. And as usual, we welcome your comments, questions and corrections. And this is the point where we're going to make a special little announcement. Hopefully not ruin your week.
Yeah, no, it's a it's a good announcement, um, and it's uh, it's <laughs> Christmas that, based though. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Uh, <laughs> it's that time we've, of year again. We've nearly gotten Halloween out of the way, so now we're allowed to talk about Christmas, and it's true. So during November, we're gonna be running a little bit of a giveaway campaign because we've made some really special conservation Christmas crackers uh, that we are looking forward to distributing. So cute Christmas bells. Yeah. So yes, basically there's going to be uh, 20 of these Christmas crackers up for grabs. Keep an eye on our social media because that's where the campaign will be running. We just want you to know. So pay attention to Twitter and Facebook and uh, more details will follow. If you're enjoying The C Word and would like to support our work, then please consider becoming one of our patrons. For as little as $1 per month, you can help us keep our episodes online and more of them coming. Patreon helps us meet our regular costs for the show, and also to plan ahead so we know roughly how much of a monthly budget we've got. That's super helpful when you're trying to do something special like buy a better microphone or save up to go to a special event. Your support also helps keep us free of advertisements. In return, our supporters get access to our archive of extended episodes, which you can only access on our Patreon page. Yeah, for that $1 a month, you get a little extra audio enjoyment. We've crunched the numbers, and it's about 10% extra content on a regular basis. Well, that's not bad for less than a cup of coffee, eh? If supporting us sounds like something you'd like to do, then head over to patreon.com slash the C word and join our bunch of absolute champions. And a warm welcome to our latest patron, Rosie. Thank you so much for supporting us. Thanks for listening. We're The C Word and you've been listening to Ali Singh, Chloe Rumsey and me, Jenny Mathiasen. Join us next time for an episode about thinking big. In the meantime, check out our website at thecword.show, tweet us at thecwordpodcast or simply email us on thecwordpodcast at gmail.com. The intro and outro music is Spring by Didi Music, used under a Creative Commons Attribution License. Additional music and sound effects by Callum Robertson. This has been a Wooden Dice production. See, I always do this. <laughs> um, it's like someone deflated Chloe. Yeah, hang on. Um,